All right, are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside, and Jill Winger is back. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me again. I can't wait. Yeah, this is awesome. Last time we talked about your fantastic cookbook. I mean, that cookbook has got a life of its own. It's got so many reviews. It's a phenomenal cookbook. It's just a favorite of so many people's. And when we talked last time, you were talking about your book that's coming out here just in September. Remember, they had gone back to the drawing board for the cover. Yes. Yes, we did. There was some cover drama. I haven't really been able to talk about all of that publicly, but there was, yeah, there was some back and forth on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But I love how it turned out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it it was good. It took a while to get there, but we made it. (laughs) We made it. It I love the cover. So it's called Old Fashioned on Purpose, Cultivating a Slower, More Joyful Life. This is a comprehensive book. Yes, I really I wanted to do a deep dive. You know, there's a lot of homesteading books on the market now. There didn't used to be. The homestead shelf has exploded at bookstores. Uh, but I see a lot of them are, are, are really focusing on completely practical how to. And I wanted this one to be like a mindset book and a more, more philosophy, bigger picture. So mm-hmm. it was fun to write. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what you do. You kind of go through your process of starting off as a child and kind of having these longings for horses and a different life. And the process just unfolds over the course of many, many years. Can we start at the point in the story where you're pregnant, Yes, really pregnant, like about to have a baby. Yes. And also you're at a family event and grabbing goats at the same time. Yes. uh, That was a pivotal point in my life. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, I was eight and a half months pregnant with our first child. So it was all the new mom stresses and things that you go through. And we were simultaneously starting to increase our homestead efforts. We had bought our homestead about a year and a half prior, and we had started off with a compost piles and we had a garden. I think we had chickens by then, but I really wanted raw milk. And raw milk was illegal to purchase, like most states, but in Wyoming at the time, it was illegal to purchase. And uh, I was like, okay, well, if I want raw milk, it's too far to drive to anywhere that would have it where I could buy it. So I just have to get, you know, produce it myself, obviously. And so <laughs> a cow, a dairy cow felt a little bit like a big leap. So I, goats were just the logical option. And so, you know, ever the efficient one, I had this barbecue to go to in Colorado. And I had also found goats that I wanted to purchase nearby. And so I talked my husband into <laughs> taking our stock trailer to pick up the goats and then roll into this barbecue. And the barbecue was like in a really nice downtown suburban neighborhood. Like it was not in, uh, on the outskirts of town. <laughs> so we roll in and we park this horse trailer. We had to like find parking because this is neighborhoods are not designed for horse trailer parking. Mm-hmm. You know, squeeze it in. And, the, and they were Nubian goats. And so they're very loud. They're just known to be kind of screamers. And so we're sitting there eating hamburgers, trying to be like prim and proper and polite. Like super pregnant. <laughs> super pregnant. Like and I, when I'm pregnant, I would get huge. Like I am not cute pregnant. I am like whale pregnant. So I was like <laughs> ginormously pregnant. Everyone's trying to talk about the baby and baby preparations. And there's goats screaming on the curb. And it was just, I thought it was great. It felt right. And I'm, I, I can just imagine what the family was thinking at that point. So that was a really uh, interesting foreshadowing of life to come. Uh, I think that kind of shows how I move through life. We take a lot of messy, imperfect, sometimes crazy action, mm-hmm. but that has served us really well, just di- diving in and, you know, building the parachute on the way down to mix some metaphors there. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, it was a, it's a fun story to think back on now. <laughs> and it's an action that is counterculture. So that's another point of what you did. It's not just that you have these goats with you. It's the fact that The reason you're getting the goats is because the government says you can't buy raw milk, but you wanted to buy raw milk. Yes. Why did you want to have raw milk? Yeah. So I've done a lot of reading. I was um, introduced to the Weston A. Price Foundation at that time. So that was kind of back in those, I feel like such an old lady, back in those days of blogs, it was, you know, if you were doing a healthy living blog, it wasn't keto or paleo or vegan. It was Weston A. Price. Like that was really dominating a lot of the mom blogs at the time they really preached the merits of raw milk. And then I just, it, it was, I think one of the first times I'd really started to question the things I had been told in terms of culture and food. And raw milk was one of those gateways of like, okay, wait, we've always had pasteurized milk. Pasteurized milk's what they sell. The government says raw milk is the most dangerous thing you can consume. And I'm like, but what did they consume for, you know, since the beginning of time, let's say, like, what were they doing back then? And just asking those questions, which honestly is still the questions I'm asking in this book, 
I became really convinced of the health benefits. It just made sense that why not drink it straight from the animal? Like it's kind of designed to be consumed. And I understand why pasteurization came about because there was a lot of deaths related to raw milk in the 1800s because the practices were so atrocious. So it made sense that people were getting very, very ill, but I'm like, we're not, if we're not handling the animals like that anymore, why are we still cooking it? So yeah, it was like those, oh wait, wait what, this doesn't make as much sense as I thought it did, or I had never thought of it before. And that was a really important point, not only of just pushing back against normal, like you have to kind of be willing to let your crazy hang out a little bit to bring goats to a barbecue. <laughs> and that feels a little foreign and can feel scary sometimes, but also like just starting to ask those questions of why do we have to do it like this? What, what if we did it a different way? Mm-hmm. And that's really a premise of the book is that a good life stems sometimes from the good questions that you ask and just noticing, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And one of the big questions that people ask is, why would you put yourself through hardship Mm -hmm. when you don't have to? Why would you struggle with losing gardens? And why would you dig out potatoes when you can go buy them at the store? This is a big thing that you talk about and have talked about really for a long time is the easier things have gotten, the unhappier we've become. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I found that to be, I think, to personally, one of the most interesting pieces of the whole book research process. It's what I call the modern paradox uh, in terms of, you know, for the last, especially 150 years, we've pushed so hard. Thank you, industrial revolution, to getting things easier and more convenient and more comfortable. And that's really been so much of our primary driving force. That's what prompts people to buy. That's what prompts people to to consume. And I'd say, I mean, we're not all the way there, but 2023, we're pretty dang close. Like we have some ease. We have climate control. Um, we don't have to have calluses on our hands to make a living. We don't have to sweat if we don't want to. We don't really have to be cold. Like the amount of complaining I hear from people when they have to walk from their house to their car to go to work and it's just cold outside. I'm like, we are so acclimated to never being uncomfortable and we worship that idea at all costs. Yet, if we think about our cultural happiness levels or even look at data around that, they're pretty low. Like they're pretty much, you know, tanking. So you have to ask, you know, for the last 150 years or even further back in human history, we have thought that getting our lives as easy as possible with as little work, as little manual work, as little as uncomfortable work as possible would be the pivotal moment. And now we're pretty much there and it's not the pivotal moment. We're actually suffering. There's a lot of interesting studies and data that kind of backs that up. This idea that when we remove all meaningful challenge from our life, our bodies just don't know what to do with that. We're designed to push into hard things. We're designed to be uncomfortable. We're designed to be tackling challenges. And I talk about in the book, one of the kind of cool revelations I had is you can even see it in our storytelling throughout human history. Stories have always been a huge part of us. There's a lot of psychology around storytelling and why humans have always latched onto it. Our brains understand things in stories better, but no one listens to a story if it, there's no mountain to overcome. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I read my kids, you know, children's books and it's just like, Bob wouldn't have had a sandwich and then Bob went to the park, Bob went to bed at the end. It's just like, oh, like obviously that's a child's <laughs> book, but like, they're not even interesting to my children. My children are like, meh not feeling it. So we love stories. And the the most well-loved, famous stories of all human history always have a major adversary or a major challenge. And we love hearing how the hero overcomes that and comes through the other side, even when they don't think they're going to make it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating that we love those stories, Mm -hmm. yet we try to craft our life to be the exact opposite at all costs. So I think there's a little bit of a mismatch there that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. What a thing to observe. And I would agree with you. We're there, right? Like you talk about, you know, we've got the Roomba, we've got the dishwasher, we've got the air conditioning, and we've got the vehicles. And yet we are not happier than probably what people would have thought. We've got the canned food and the microwaves. But one of the other things that you talk about in the book that's really fascinating is that our brains sort of acclimate to this comfort that we're in. And then basically like make up problems from the littler things. Yeah. Um, that study is actually a study that was fascinating. It's um, they call it problem creep. And in essence, these researchers will try to kind of condense it down. They brought in a bunch of participants in a study and they started showing them a series of pictures. They were testing this idea. And so um, there was a bunch of different sets of pictures, but one of them was a bunch of faces, like line drawings of faces. And they were pretty, you know, simple drawings, but some of the faces had a more menacing look and some had just a more neutral or just like happy look. 
And so they would sit the people down and they'd flash these pictures in front of them quickly. And then the person, the participant had to go, okay, that's a threatening face or that's a non-threatening face, just like on their, their quick judgment. And what they didn't know, what the researchers didn't tell them. And as the pictures progressed through the stack, they were showing them less truly threatening faces. Hmm. The faces got more and more neutral and they started to get kind of like a little more friendly. So less threatening, more friendly. But what the researchers discovered that as the truly threatening pictures started to become less and less and less, the participants started to categorize more of the pictures as threatening. So that's a little bit convoluted maybe, but like what it shows us is that in the absence of actual problems or actual things in one category, our brain makes up more problems. It makes up things to be a struggle that really shouldn't be a struggle. Yeah. And I think, you know, we laugh a lot about first world problems, you know, oh my gosh, Starbucks is out of whatever, soy milk, mm-hmm. or, you know, we, we laugh about that. But really that's yeah. that in real life application is that um, we don't have meaningful struggles. So the littlest things throw us into a tailspin mm-hmm. and make us feel really miserable. And so if, if I, if it's up to me, I would rather build in meaningful challenge, challenge that feels good. That's not just kind of this whiny first world idea of I'm inconvenienced and now my life is over. Uh, but that meaningful challenge feels a lot better and it makes our brains really happy. We're chasing something that doesn't exist. Yes. It won't exist because once your life gets easier, the wording you use here is trivial things become troublesome. Yes. And so it's just not ever going to exist. So what we're missing is, like you talk about, we're missing that meaningful part. I loved when you were talking about, look, if I'm feeding hay and chopping ice in below zero temps, the crackling fire feels real good. Yeah. And so we're missing that. We're missing those two ends of the spectrum. And you talk about hardship, like we're talking about comfort and why would I plant a tomato if I can just go buy it at the store? It's a lot of work, but also there's a lot of chance for failure and it definitely happens because that's how things go in nature. You get a hailstorm. We got a hailstorm this year. You get bindweed and it takes over. That's what happened to ours. It takes over the whole garden when you're out of town at a conference. And you know, you look at someone like you and you've been homesteading now for a long time and are a leader in this space. People look to you, but you struggle with your gardens and have struggled with your gardens. It's not been a piece of cake for you. So what about the people that are like, okay, I'm convinced about the hard work, but why would I do something if I know I might fail? That's such a good question. I think that is a a fear that so many people have. My answer to that would be that we can never have good things or we're never going to be able to get what we want or achieve success in the areas that matter to us. And success doesn't always mean monetary. It means a lot of different things. We're never going to have that unless we fail some to get there. They go together. They cannot be separated. So if you want the thing, let's say you want to get in shape or you want to grow some food or you want to um, be competitive in a certain hobby that you have, you cannot get to that objective without messing up, without going through beginner mode. We all hate beginner mode. I don't like to be the beginner in something, but we you have to go through that discomfort in order to get to the thing on the other side. And I think that maybe, I don't know, there's got to be something in our modern culture where we have exalted ease so much that we've lost that piece that like, okay, but you still have to be uncomfortable to get what you're really after Mm -hmm. in life. And I think that's important. I was talking to Amy from Homesteaders of America and Mm -hmm. we were talking about how when COVID happened, there was this huge rush towards some of her videos that were about basically getting seeds in the ground. How do you grow food? And if that was such an interesting thing, because there must be this thought that it's really easy to figure out like, oh, if things happen and the world falls apart, I'll just learn how to garden then. Yeah. But it doesn't really work that way. It doesn't. And and I like to say it's it's simple, but it's not always easy. That COVID period was so fascinating. I've told the story a few times. I truly thought when the virus started hitting in that early spring, um, you know, we make a living creating content and teaching people how to homestead. And I looked at my husband and I said, I think our business is done. I don't think I will have a platform. No one's going to care about gardening when they're tr- they're worried about this virus. Like, who's going to be making canned tomatoes when they're they're in quarantine? Like, now I'm like Jill, what an idiot! Like, <laughs> we all know what happened. The exact opposite. My platform exploded during COVID, but I didn't see it coming. And I I think it's such a fascinating thing that how we ran back to those time honored principles and those time honored skills in an age of upheaval. But yeah, I think that's a good point that you bring up. I love that people were motivated by COVID to look into old-fashioned things and think about making bread and think about planting seeds. Mm-hmm. But these are not 
just survival skills. And I get a little bit, eh, I don't know the right word, grouchy, <laughs> annoyed. And it, it sometimes there's this mindset of fear around, hmm. you know, I call it like the, you know, the zombie mindset. We have to be ready. The end of the world is coming. The end of the world is coming. Like that's a really easy way to sell things is to get people really scared. But I, I don't do what I do out of fear. I don't do it out of just to save me from whatever's happening at the end of the world scenarios. These are human skills. Mm -hmm. These are skills that keep us human in a world that's increasingly trying to make us not human and trying to fit us into little perfect robot factory boxes. And I think, um, I hope that people, maybe COVID prompted them to look in these ideas again, but I hope that people will grasp onto them, even if they're not scared of the end of the world, even if they're thinking everything is okay right now, because they're really important just for our health and happiness and well-being. Yeah, there's these practicalities, right? Like, you need to learn how to grow the food. You want to learn to make the sourdough bread. But there must have been something in all of those things that people did that sustained them emotionally and mentally yeah. and spiritually, their soul. They're moving back to these things that make us feel good. The bread makes us feel good. And I think that's probably why a lot of it has sustained. People are still doing those things, yeah. even now that they don't have to. It's like they relearned that, number one, they can do it, but also it makes them feel really good. And you talked about that in your book. You were talking about joy, the words you use, first homemade tortillas on top of the world, yep. first egg, utter ecstasy, first meal grown entirely on your property, walking on air for at least 24 hours. You said, I had experienced fleeting glimpses of joy here and there, but now it engulfed me. The world had opened and I was seeing color for the first time. Yeah. These are huge statements, Jill. Yeah. From an egg? From an egg. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, I know. I, as I wrote that, I'm like, is this is this over dramatic? But it, I really, it really wasn't. Like, I think back to those early years on the homestead. Those were some of the most magical years because I was, you know, experiencing that for the first time. And I, and I cannot, like, I cannot fully describe what happened in me as I started to realize I could make things. Mm -hmm. I could affect change on my land. I could become a producer instead of a consumer. When I think back to how I felt as a little girl, I had little cravings for that, but I could not verbalize it. And I couldn't even consciously like understand what I was feeling. And it was like the puzzle pieces fell into place at that point. And I was like high on adrenaline for months and years, just like, I can do this. And now I can make this. And I remember going to people and like, I remember one friend was like, I'm making yogurt. And she's like, gross. And I was just like <laughs> devastated. I'm like, how could you think that's gross? This is like, I can make yogurt from milk at home for free. Well, I'm not really free, but I thought it was pretty, you know, I was going to save millions of dollars by making my own yogurt. That's a whole nother conversation. I was just like, couldn't fathom why people weren't just like jumping up and down excited. I guess I'm a total weirdo and a little bit nerdy, but it was, it was such a fun period of discovering all those things. And it, it just feels amazing when I think we plug into that for the first time. Hmm. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, Transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat 
and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. Well, and nature makes it so that it doesn't ever really end. There's always more. There's always something else you can try. A new type of sheep. The other day, we, we found these things in the woods called ghost pipes. There's these flowers, and they're white, and they 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 have no chlorophyll. They're flowers, so and cool. they only bloom for one week a year. I've never seen one. So that's yeah. how nature is. It's like you always, on a homestead, you always have opportunities to see a new variety of a, my friend has Indian runner. I guess they're not even ducks. I'm not totally sure. Anyway, they're so cute, and they run after each other. Yep. All of these different things that you don't even really know exist. You can try different types of plants, and you can try different heirloom varieties of seeds. And so it's one of those things that that ecstasy and that joy of trying something new can last a whole lifetime. Yes. Really, you only have a countable number of chances to grow a garden. Yeah, I didn't start till I was in my almost 40. I have a countable number of times to give it a shot and to try different things. And so the opportunity for that newness to always be there is one of the things that homesteading provides beyond like you talk about the practicalities and being able to care for yourself. So in this book, Old Fashioned on Purpose, Cultivating a Slower, More Joyful Life, which is a comprehensive book, Joe. It came in the mail. I was so excited to read it. There's so much information in here, great stories, interesting topics. You go through a lot of the old-fashioned ways, which are not anything mind-blowing, right? It's like grow your own food, cook your own meals, make things. (laughs) But it gives people a roadmap, right? Like if I said, look, you know, I am feeling really unfulfilled in my life. I could pick this book up and start right now. I could grab some of these different topics and start right where we're at. So can we start with cooking at home? You brought that up in the last time that we talked with your Prairie Homestead Cookbook, which is a phenomenal cookbook, that cooking at home is homesteading. It's a component of homesteading. So if someone lives in an apartment, someone lives in the city, they haven't really hopped into any of this container gardening. They don't have anything on their windowsill, any herbs or anything like that. They're at square one. They could start cooking at home and be a little a little bit of a homesteader. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who doesn't cook from scratch at all? Yeah, which is a lot of people because we've really been sold a very compelling story by marketers over the last hundred-ish years that cooking is beneath us, cooking is drudgery, cooking is not worth your time. And I really love to push back against that narrative because I think it's stealing so much from us. So what I would say to someone who has never cooked before is like, you don't have to go whole hog like overnight. You can start small. You can take baby steps. I say usually start by just reconsidering your ingredients. Like when you go grocery shopping, look at your cart. Are you buying pre-made everything or are you buying components? And over the years, as we've shifted into this homestead lifestyle, like if you look at my cart at the grocery store, which I don't go very much anymore, I usually get my groceries either from places like Azure Standard or co-ops or, you know, local or I grew up myself. But I still go to the grocery store sometimes. Hmm. But I'm buying components that allow me to make multiple things. You know, flour, sugar, baking soda, vegetables, meats, things that are helping me make a variety of different foods versus just pre-made, ready-made all the time. So I think just thinking about that, just thinking what you're buying, thinking about where it's coming from, the impact that's having. I talk about that in the book. And I know to some people that's review, but to some people it's not. Like, was this local? Did it was it grown in China? Because some of our food is grown in China or in you know South America, and it's coming a long ways. What's the impact it's having? And then just pick something that you enjoy eating, mm-hmm. you know, something that you really feel motivated to make, and see if you can try making a piece of that or making all of it. Maybe it's making gravy. Maybe it's making biscuits. Maybe it's learning how to roast a chicken. And the reason I always start with the food is because I know that if I can get people hooked on that just a little bit. If they can just try a few things, I know the dopamine is going to release in their brain Mm -hmm. and they're going to feel a little charge of excitement and then they're going to try something else. And then they're going to, it's just like the snowball of momentum that they'll end up becoming a lot more engaged in the world around them just by thinking about food differently. Mm -hmm. And the marketing sure is interesting. 
you said, beneath us drudgery, not worth your time. Also, I think they marketed that it's really hard. Yeah. And I remember the first time that I made a loaf of bread, and this would have been just over a decade ago. And I just remember thinking, this is not hard. It's not hard. Yeah. This is so easy. I just remember thinking, like, this is only a couple ingredients. What? Flour, sugar, yeast, water makes me, and if you do sourdough, you don't even need the yeast. I'm like, yep. this makes me bread, and it's the most delicious bread I've ever had, and it grows, and I've got all these kids, and now I have a food that grows. Yes. And then I remember thinking about all the foods that I assumed you couldn't make, like a cracker. Yes. You know, yes. the things that come in boxes, and you're like, oh, well, what? oh you can make a cracker? Yeah. <laughs> and all of these different things. And so you had some really interesting things in the book about the actual marketing, like the Wonder Bread. And they're saying, it's got as much iron as three lamb chops. And and we yeah. went <laughs> and niacin, six sardines or whatever it is. Yeah. So you realize over the time period that the marketers had lied to you. Yeah. And I had that same moment as you when I, that, I think that was part of my, that revelation of like, you can make crackers. Oh my gosh. And you can make tortillas and I can make yogurt and I can make like, oh, this is like, it was just like mind blowing to me, like, and exciting. And like you said, they weren't hard because I just assume, people just assume I get so many people still coming to me. Oh, I want to make bread, but I know I have to like block off the weekend. And I'm like, no, no, you don't actually. You just need, like, we made my daughter threw together sourdough dough last night. It was like three minutes to put it in the bowl, mix it together and cover it with a towel. And then now it's been sitting while we, while we slept and I'll bake it this morning before we homeschool. It'll take me approximately five minutes or actually less to put it in a basket and then the Dutch oven and bake it. I mean, I'll, I'll let the oven preheat while I do dishes. Like it's just like, okay, so less than 10 minutes of active time, I'll have two loaves of sourdough bread. And I, I mean, if people, it's just like the best kept secret of our time, like if people just knew how easy it is mm -hmm. and not just the nutrition piece, that's a big piece of it. It tastes better. It's good for you, but like, it feels good to this day. I've been making sourdough for a long time. Like when I pull the loaves out later this morning, I feel good when I do it. It makes me proud. It makes me feel content. And that is something I think we're always underestimating. Yeah. There's so many components to it. So I've been talking to Dan Butner. He does the blue zones mm -hmm. and he talks about like people that live to be a hundred centenarians and sourdough is in his newest book, Jill, Ooh. where he talks about that that is one of the components of these centenarians is that they're eating sourdough their whole life, often for all of the meals. They do sourdough with minestrone soup in these different cultures. And he said that the sourdough, this is so interesting, which I've actually never made sourdough. I've only made the bread with the yeast, which is also really fun. You can make bagels, all you have to do is stick your thumb in the middle. I'm like, well, how do you make the hole? And then, yeah. <laughs> then you learn, <laughs> yes. oh, like yeah. you literally just stick your thumb in the middle and it yeah. makes a ring and you boil it. And my kids eat those in like four minutes flat. They're gone. Yeah, They're so easy to make. But the sourdough, he says, lowers your glycemic index for the entire meal. Basically, the sourdough eats up the sugars from the other foods that you're eating. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yes. Cool. <laughs> yes. So the sourdough thing is a really big deal. It's, you know, he goes in and he talks to these centenarians and he comes away with like, here's the 10 things that they do. And sourdough is in there. So, I mean, that's a really phenomenal thing to think that's about. I'm like, I got to cool. do it. Yes. Okay. Well, then you talked about how in the 60s, and this is an interesting thing to know that people would spend two hours. I think this is the misnomer that the average person would spend two hours a day in the kitchen preparing meals. And so a lot of people look at that or I don't know, maybe have this thought of like, I do not have the time for that. But here you say, look, I can make two loaves of sourdough bread in 10 minutes. And if you're doing it with soup, you're throwing those ingredients in the pot. Yes. And it really does not take two hours a day. It really doesn't. Yeah. And I, you know, cause I think people maybe assume because of my platform, like I'm Ma Ingalls in the kitchen all day long and just like with my apron on and I'm, I'm not like, especially at this stage of our life, we are moving pretty quickly. You know, I have book launches, I have businesses, we own a restaurant, I'm homeschooling, like I, I'm on podcasts, I'm, I'm in the office. So I'm a lot more like the modern woman than people think I'm in and out and I've got a lot of balls I'm juggling. But yeah, there, I can, it can be as simple as I put something in the crock pot before we start the day. Or I just think just sometimes like three minutes or less of thinking ahead, pulling something out of the freezer, or just going, okay, for supper, we're having this and I'm going to chop this onion now and put it in a container and pull this meat out and I'll deal with the rest later. Like it just, it just is a little bit of forethought and it's shocking how quickly you can get food on the table um, without hours and hours in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So you've got an awesome list in here. People should buy the book just for, there's a couple really cool lists. 
So one of the really coolest is top 10 things to start making from scratch. So that's a fantastic one. I loved the bucket list, Jill. Mm. That was so fun. The bucket list of all of these skills that you can learn, the kind of like what we were talking about before, like you're not going to exhaust this. Yeah. If you find joy from going back to simple things and working with your hands, you're not ever going to exhaust the list because you have this long thing about, I mean, it's everything from learning how to unclog a toilet to learning how to propagate plants through root cutting, through all of these different types of things that you can learn, or to incubating chickens and learning how to fish, all of these hands-on. This is a great list. I love this one. You say, find what suits you, the old-fashioned skills bucket list. <laughs> yes. Funny behind the scenes, that was actually in my cookbook and the publisher cut it. And I have saved it for four years to put in this book. It's perfect for this book. Yes. It's perfect for this book. Yeah. I've noticed in myself and other adults and, and children also, like when you start adding skills to your repertoire, whether that's how to make sourdough bread or how to butcher a pig or how to unclog a toilet, it changes you. Like you walk a little different. You just start to carry yourself with more confidence and you start to go, okay, I handled that problem. And I don't know how to do this thing, but I bet I can figure it out because I'm a capable human. And mm -hmm. I feel like that is something that so many of our modern people are missing because we have leaned so heavily into convenience and everything is, we press a button, it's an app, they deliver it, it's easy. And not that that's always bad, but man, it robs us of like that competence that when I put my shoulders back and I can handle the world, I can, I can move through life with confidence. Like that's, that's priceless. Mm -hmm. And you tell a story about how it relieves stress. One of the stories that you tell that really models that is that you were in a stressful time, you open the restaurant, you wrote, we're going to make milkshakes and live happily ever after. <laughs> that did not happen. <laughs> yeah. And I think we have these times where it pours, like when it rains, it pours. Yeah. That's what people say, right? And you feel like you're lost, you're stuck. What do we do in those moments when we're completely overwhelmed and we're engulfed and you made Gouda? Yeah. Why? Um, it feels a little counter uh, productive, or I think some people would say, cause I, it was such a stressful time and I was so busy and I was feeling like that constant adrenaline, you know, where it's just underlying and you feel like you can't get it to go away. So sometimes when I feel like that, I'll be honest, my, I end up zoning out of my phone and sedating is what I call it through my phone. That's still a temptation. And sometimes I do it, but I also know that when I do that, when I'm in the middle of a crummy time or just when I'm tired, doesn't make me feel better. It makes me feel worse. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of wake up from my stupor and I'm like, Oh, you wasted a half an hour doing absolutely nothing. So it's not about being productive, but it's about how do we move our bodies and kind of reset ourselves. So when I made Gouda during that period of time, which felt, I'm sure someone would have been like, what are you doing? Go take a nap. I, I was so hyped up. I couldn't take a nap. And I just something in, inside of me knew that I needed to create. And I just needed to kind of come back to center. And for me, being connected to nature or being connected to nature through the kitchen, because like what, there's nothing really more natural and beautiful than making cheese. You're taking milk mm. and you're turning it into this solid with bacteria and cultures and time. And it's like there's scientific process, but there's an art. And it's very, to me, it's a very grounding experience. And so it was so funny during that period, how I noticed how different I felt before and after the cheese, just the process of sinking into the cheese and not thinking about the other parts of my life that were imploding and being there with the milk and being there with the pot, almost like a mindfulness exercise without trying to make it a mindfulness exercise. But mm. I, I lean on that to this day. Like when we're, I'm in periods of heavy stress, I actually prioritize the garden more or I prioritize walking more. I've been walking every night after supper and I have lots going on right now. We're, we're you know, gearing up for book launch and I have lots of things happening, but I'm like, if I don't walk, then it throws, you know, I just don't do something that's bringing myself back to my body and bringing myself back to connect with my environment. It makes everything else harder. So I've learned to prioritize those things. And a lot of times people go, how do you have time to do all the things you do? And I'm like, I have to make time because it keeps the rest of my busy life flowing. Mm -hmm. If I don't get out in the garden or I don't get outside, I'm not creative. I can't think of new ideas. I don't make good podcast episodes. I don't produce the things I need to produce. And so it's it's kind of there. They go together. Mm -hmm. Like you have to have those parts. Do. They're absolutely necessary to make the rest of it work. And they just help you feel better. So this is, these are great ideas to make your home a hub of creation. It's for you and it's also for your kids. And then they have opportunities to work with their hands. And just knowing that working with hands has been proven 
to reduce stress. So it's such an important thing. It's counterintuitive. Yes. You would think you should veg on the couch, but you say, nope, I'm more mentally in- engaged and energized, even after strenuous activity, when I'm filling my life with meaningful things. So, so important for this day and age, both for us and for our kids. Let's talk real quick about growing food. I do really love that you've, <laughs> this is awful, that you've struggled with it. <laughs> yeah, good. Yes, I have struggled with it. I'm still struggling with it. <laughs> so. It's really an interesting thing. Like you know, horses were your first thing. Yeah. Which, what a cool story, Jill, that you bought your first horse at 14. So sorry. So sorry. You're fine. You're fine. I think they found another raccoon. Yeah, you're good. Just take your time. You're good. You're good. So there was another raccoon. (laughs) (laughs) This has never happened in a podcast interview. Just so you know, this is special. Really special. special. Anyway. Nice and unique. I I think about the farm and it seems like once you start to do these different things, you find the things that you really thrive at or some maybe some things come more naturally than others so you started off with the animals you started off with a horse age 14 which is an amazing story you buy your own horse and it seems like a lot of the animal things well i don't know you know you, you also have talked about how some animals that you know they pass away and it's really hard so yeah. none of it's easy but you know in the garden in particular there can be so many struggles and you can lose a whole yes. crop and yes. You can be having water shortages and too much shade. And it's there's some intricacies there that maybe are different than I've got a cow and I'm getting gobs of milk. Yeah. So when we go to the garden, I love that you say, don't overthink it. I mean, I think that's some of the best advice. And yeah. I don't know, I'm talking too much because I should ask you a question. But what, no, what I, I have like learned, <laughs> well, what I've learned for me is that a lot of things don't grow or a lot of things get messed up. But even if a couple things grow, you still feel really good about it. And if you're yes. dependent on it for your canning and your thing doesn't grow, I feel like you can go to the farmer's market and get the bushel of tomatoes that have a little bit of blight on them or whatever they yes. call it. I don't know. You can get the apples that have fallen to the ground and are a little smashed and you can get them for pretty cheap. So anyway, so you say don't overthink it. Water, weed, watch. And don't despise small gardens. Basically, I'm just reading some of your book here. I've got no question, except that I just love that you're really honest about it. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 1000 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think I, I noticed in the homestead world that some people are more animal prone and some people more plant prone. And I don't think if one's right or wrong, it's just how you're wired. And I definitely have had an easier time with animals. Uh, just it has been, it has been easier to make food. I mean, like for us, we have grass, we're grassland. So, I mean, why I can't imagine anything easier than letting us steer graze for 18 months. And then I'm like, I get however many hundreds of pounds of meat, whereas these tomatoes I'm having to bake them <laughs> to grow. So yeah, I think it just depends on where you're at in your journey, but yeah, t- like even this year, we had some more herbicide residual contamination. And so my tomatoes. And so I thought I had it all taken care of. And I noticed the leaves, so, you know, two months in the leaves are curling again. And it's just like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I lost an entire bed of cabbage to, it was either grasshoppers or cabbage moss this year. Like I, I noticed one day um, there was a few, there was some holes in the leaves and I was like, note to self, do something about, you know, spray it down or whatever. And then two days later I come out and there were no leaves left. <laughs> They were just gone. So I think that it's again, that failure idea that you cannot have the good harvest though without the failures. And I would so much rather see people take that messy, imperfect action and just start mm-hmm. instead of sitting back and going, okay, what am I going to do? You know, we, we try to over-prepare, right? We overanalyze. What am I going to do if this happens? What am I going to do if this happens? Like, stop doing that. Just go start it. And then if there's problems, we'll We'll deal with it later. But um, even mm-hmm. with all my, I have, you know, my massive garden failures over the years, we still grow a lot of food. So it's amazing how forgiving it yeah. can be. Yeah. And you do, you have to do it because you don't have that many opportunities. Yeah. I think like, okay, what if someone puts me in a retirement home when I'm like, you know, 74, I only have, yeah. you know, I only have a couple, a couple more decades left to try this. And yeah. then you learn like, okay, I don't really like growing that, or I really like growing that. And I guess in certain places, maybe you have more than one growing season, but in places where we're in Michigan, we have one, you know, one shot. Yeah. So you got to do it. You got to try. And then you learn and don't overthink it. Put things in the ground. You had all sorts of ways of dealing with the food after so that you could preserve it, freezing, canning, dehydrating, salt cure, ferment. So a lot of amazing ideas in there. But I like what you said. I think what you, you said, what I was getting at, which is that when you do these different things like cooking at home or working with your hands, you do start to find what your inclination is or what maybe works for your particular area. And so that's why it's important not to specialize. And you talk about that, really, it's in a different section. It's about working with your hands. But in the garden, the same thing. When you specialize, you're missing out on all these other things that you possibly could be learning, even if you're learning that you don't like that part. Yeah. Like when you talk about your milk jars in the spring, you're playing Tetris because the cows are producing so much milk. And the videos, Jill, the videos of the cows grazing in the grasslands are some of my favorite videos yes. I've ever seen. Yeah. So I just think it's important that people know that you still do the things that don't come quite as easily and that they still, like you said, they still produce some food. Yeah. And here's here's an interesting um, little side note to that about the, the things that don't come easily. As I've progressed, I've been homesteading <clears throat> for well over a decade now. And I think when we, whenever we as humans start something new, our goal is to always to arrive, right? To get to the thing, to figure, mm-hmm. I just want to figure this out and be good at it. Here's what I've noticed happen in myself. There's a lot of homestead skills now that feel second nature. Not to say that I still don't struggle, but like starting seeds every year, I have that down to a science. It's usually pretty, pretty simple. And, you know, making basic sourdough bread, I kind of have that figured out. And, you know, roasting a chicken, been there, done that. I noticed a couple of years ago, I started to get bored with it because I was doing the same old things over and over. Mm -hmm. Not that they were bad, not that I'm going to quit doing them, but I had this very clear craving. I'm like, you need a challenge. You need to mix this up. And so even within my crazy old fashioned life, I find myself, I am still the happiest when I'm on the edge of not knowing much about the new thing I'm tackling. Like I now have learned where at the beginning, that was always the state I was in. And I've learned to crave that state because I love what comes when I'm figuring it out, when I'm bumbling through the wins that I have. And so now I, I consciously seek that out, even as I've mastered, not mastered, that's an arrogant word, but I have 
you know, been there, done that on a lot of these homestead skills. I'm like, okay, now how can I get better at this? How can I understand this more thoroughly? How can I use 100% whole wheat in my sourdough bread instead of white flour? How can I become more permaculture minded and actually nurture the soil instead of just grow tomatoes? So I think we always need to be pushing up to that next level, whatever that may be, because that's, I think it just keeps us a lot sharper and happier. Mm-hmm. And that's what this lifestyle affords. Yes. The vacuum robot doesn't give you a, a next level. Right. You know, it just ends. So I think that that's a, a huge component of it and a really important part to know that with nature, there's always something new to learn and with animals and gardens and cooking and you can always learn something new. You can always stretch yourself. Let's wrap up here with parenting. Yeah. Because this is a really big one and you talk about questions and this is something that I've questioned. Why are we putting kids in school for so much time? Yeah. Yeah. Why are we spending so much time on academics? The things that we question, where did this come from? And I was in the classroom for a while as a teacher. And so I had a little bit of insight to know that no one really knows where it comes from, actually. And these legislative initiatives get passed down. It felt like from the heavens. Yeah. Even as an administrator, I was, it's like, well, who's saying that the kids have to know that? Why? Yes. Why does every single kid have to pass Algebra 2 yeah. in order to graduate high school? Why? And no one could answer it. Even as an upper level administrator, who knows where to come from? I don't know. And this is a big thing that goes hand in hand a little bit with old fashioned things because kids used to play more. Yeah. Yes. They used to, to risk more. Yes. Yes. They used to be, and they used to have a lot more adult less time, <laughs> adult free time, which. Mm-hmm. Our culture does not afford that at all. And I, I had to be careful. I, I had to be really careful with that chapter because I know that everyone parents differently and there's always already a lot of shame heaped on parents. And so I was trying to, to be mindful of that. But we have gone so far in our urge to try to make our kids as successful as possible and as safe as possible. And those aren't bad desires, but we've mm-hmm. taken it to such an extreme that we're actually, I think, doing the opposite. We're actually harming our kids in a sense. Yeah. And and that's hard for people to hear. I've had people, some people get really angry when I've alluded to that. And I know that's parenting is a, it's a touchy topic, but what I've noticed, especially as you kind of look at historical parenting and not all of the ways we have raised our kids through the millennia has been great. Like there's right. some things you have to be like, eh, I'm going to leave that in the past, right. but kids had a lot more autonomy and a lot more free time. What happens when they have those things? I mean, you know, this, you, you have such a beautiful library of parenting information on your podcast that they develop into the humans they're meant to be. And they get to become more confident and they get to become more competent and they get to learn independence. And it really, more than anything, strengthens them into adulthood in ways that, you know, we're seeing a lot of kids failure to launch. We're seeing a lot of kids now that don't want to, you know, they get to the 18 or whatever, they can't leave home. They don't want to drive. They don't want to like keep moving forward into their own life and their own adventures. And I think a big part of that is we've just kind of smooshed them for so long. And so I think about how, what old fashioned ways, you know, we can use, what methods we can use to help reignite that in our modern culture. Yeah. So it's really important information. And I think it's really tricky because like you said, the messaging has to come across the right way. And I've struggled over the years too. It's the, but the message is a message of hope. Yes. Like, Hey mom, Hey dad, Hey grandparent. Yes. Hey daycare worker, daycare owner, you can do less. And gain more. Yes. That's the message. It's a message of not burdening someone with more things. It's a message of, no, no, like, hey, you can step back. Yes. Especially as the kids get older, not when they're two. Exactly. Yeah. And they, you know, they can't know to not run in the street, but as they get a little bit older. So you say the question is, how do we facilitate healthy free play? Which I think is a question that a lot of people would ask, like, well, how do I do this? And how do I get my kid to play more. And your answer is do as little as possible. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And as an overachiever personality, that was hard for me as a young mom to, to learn that. Like that was not natural to me to be like, nope, let them figure it out. But so much, especially now I have a 13, a 10 and a seven year old now. So my kids are a little older. They're extremely like, they're so independent. Sometimes like, I'm like, where are my children? I haven't seen them for hours. And like, but I have enough confidence to know that like, I trust their judgment. Like they, I, I know them well enough and every kid's different. So you have to feel that out as a parent, but I'm like, they make generally pretty good choices, pretty solid choices, just because we've practiced this. Um, Oh my gosh, what was I going to say to that? Well, that's a huge message of hope though, Jill. And I think that's the point, which is that if we're always 
filling the time. If we're always directing it as adults, you're always going to have to direct it. Yeah. And I think that when kids are little, we are desperate for times like you're talking about. Like a parent who has kids that are five and under, even eight and under might say, what? You have hours where your kids yeah. are doing things on hours and you trust them and they're growing and they're thriving. Like that is what all the toy companies are promising. That's what all the mm. screen companies are promising. And it just takes a bit of time of not directing it yes. so that they can learn how to do it. And in time, it's better for everyone. Yeah. And like you said, it is a message of hope, especially when I see the moms around me who are trying to live up to societal expectation in terms of a million activities. And then you never make, you don't want the kid to ever feel bored. I feel like that's a big thing. If you're a good mom, you never let your kids feel bored. And I'm like, oh no, we are, I love boredom. Boredom is beautiful. And so if you can step aside from that, and which is hard because there's a lot of mom guilt from other moms that is like, oh, you're not doing enough and you're not facilitating enough play. Yeah. So if you can push against that, you got to be a little countercultural there. It gives me so much more peace and it takes the strain off of me. Because really, like when I think back to my childhood, my best times of playing, I'm sure, you, I mean, you can probably relate to this as well. My best times of playing were not when an adult was facilitating. Like it was not, it was like, come on, like, get out of here, you guys, like, leave us alone. Like it, yeah. it was the best times we were alone and there was a little bit of adventure. We were, you know, back in the, by that we had rail, railroad tracks behind our house that were no longer used. We'd be on the railroad tracks as just like this kid gang and no, the, none of the adults were back there. And like, that's the stuff I remember. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know a game where an adult was like telling us what to do. You and so duck, I'm, duck, you know, goose. everyone's yeah, in duck, a circle. Duck, yeah, yeah. It's not that. No, no not at all. No. And so I think just trying to remember that and, and reproduce that's really important. Mm -hmm. And to know that that really is helpful for kids for their long-term life success. Yeah. No one is helped by being told what to do all the time no. because then when someone's not there telling you what to do, you're totally lost. And so I think in this area, I like your premise of just, ask the questions, ask the questions. Like I, I put out this quote the other day, it's from John Taylor Gatto. He says that it only takes a hundred hours for kids to become functionally literate. And then people are like, well, I don't want my kid to be at a second grade level forever. And it's yeah. like, no, no, it's not that. Yes. It's not that. It's like, if it only takes a hundred hours. So for our youngest kid, Jill, we didn't do the reading program. And guess what? She can read. Yes. But yes. she's seven. She's seven. Yeah. We just walked through a, a museum and it was about lighthouses and she's reading every sign. That's amazing. That's amazing. And yeah. so you got to ask the questions like, do we really have to spend the first three years of, you know, age five, six and seven sitting at a desk Yeah. in order to learn how to read? Do we have to? Oh, maybe yeah. not. No. And that's, yeah, those questions are so important. <laughs> so important. Yeah. It's about yeah. asking the questions because you can have a different life. Oh. You can have the life that you want. And so this importance of play is in the book, Unconventional Parenting, you talk about. And you also have this thing that says, our culture tells us our children are frail and weak. But I thought that was really funny because truth be told, we're the ones who are frail and weak. Yes. They yes. are not. They are not. Yeah. They're capable of so much more, both in like, men, uh, you know, mentally, like they're, they're emotionally capable. Generally, again, all children are different. So that's my caveat, mm -hmm. but that way, and also physically than we think they can fall down and they'll be fine. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll be okay. <laughs> they have way better balance. They have these, Katie Bowman calls them fast twitch muscles. Yes. That makes it so that they can like move really quick. When we're out in the, in nature with our kids, I am way behind <laughs> on yeah. all of the things that they can do. So I like that you push back on that too. And I like that you had this section about the different kinds of risks. It came from someone I can't remember the name, but there are really a lot of risks, height, speed, hazardous tools, dangerous locations, roughhousing and disappearing being by yourself. Yes. Yes. So awesome things there. Uh, we're running out of time, but you say, look, if we do these things and, and this fits perfectly with this conversation about children, you say, be ready for resistance. Mm -hmm. Yes. What should we do in order to prepare for the resistance? Yeah. So I got that, I, that term from one of my favorite books, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And I, did, I read that book over and over again and uh, changed my life. And I think the biggest thing we can do is, and what he says is, and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to paraphrase it, that the amateur expects that if they do the thing long enough, the resistance or the inner turmoil they feel that's like, don't do this. Just go read a book or watch Netflix. Actually, it's usually, rarely the resistance says re read a book, right? Usually it says, go scroll on your phone or watch Netflix, right? So go, just go zone out. Don't do the hard thing. It's going to be uncomfortable. 
The amateur expects that to go away. Mm. The professional, the professional artist, the professional who, meaning who, who has committed to their passion, they know it doesn't ever go away. You mm. just learn to feel that and do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's some of the best advice I've ever heard in life and in homesteading and in parenting or cooking is you're going to feel the pushback internally, externally, people mm-hmm. around us still, it's a lot less, but they'll still make little comments. And I still like when, as I was writing this book, like every day I would sit down to write, I would have a sense of dread, mm-hmm. uh, that artistic dread of like, what if I can't do it today? What if I never get this chapter? What if these words don't come together? But as I would push through that, it get really good. And I would start to get the dopamine and I start to get excited and, and the words would come. And so just learning to feel it and be okay with feeling it and keep on trucking, I think is one of the most important old fashioned skills we can develop. Jill, I love the book, Old Fashioned on Purpose, Cultivating a Slower and More Joyful Life. I'm going to, I butchered that. Old Fashioned on Purpose, Cultivating a Slower, More Joyful Life. It is available now. By the time this podcast comes out, it is available. It's a great one to get for yourself. It's a great one to get for your friends. You say it's for those willing to ask bold questions of the world. I love, I love how you started it. You start it there and you end it with peace, love, and, and I'm going to leave it a blank because I loved how you ended it. <laughs> so people have to grab it for those willing to ask bold questions of the world, peace, love, and, and people are going to have to get the book yes. for that phenomenal ending, Jill. I loved it from start to finish. Well done. Thank you, friend. You are the best at digging into books. I don't know anyone who does book reviews and conversations as good as you do. So thank you. Oh, that's so sweet. And I love that there's pictures in here. I wasn't expecting that. It's a really cool set of color photos in the middle. And they're just like these sort of behind the scenes piles of potatoes and your stacks of canning jars and the soda fountain. And so just really inspiring to see those. I absolutely adored it. And I'm so excited that you wrote it. Thank you. Me too. It feels good to have it finally out in the world yep. doing yep. doing what it needs to do. So it feels good. Yeah, we can all go be reverse pioneers. I love it. Yes. Well, thank you yes. so much, Jill. I always enjoy our time together. There was a, a thing that you said in our last podcast that went viral on uh, for those Instagram reels. Yeah, I know. That was so fun. <laughs> cool. And they were like, Jill, this is your voice. I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, that is me. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Jill. I really appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you.
If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.